0: Preterism Refuted, excerpts from E. B. Eliot's Horae Apocalypticae, or a commentary on the Apocalypse, critical and historical, including also an examination of the chief prophecies of Daniel, 5th edition, 1862, narrated by Larry Berger. Please note that this four-volume work is available from Stillwater's Revival Books, along with a treasure trove of the finest Protestant, Reformed, and Puritan literature available anywhere in the world today. Stillwater's website is www.swrb.com and they may be contacted by email at swrb at swrb.com, by ground mail at 4710 37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, T6L 3T5, Canada, and by phone at area code 780 Four five zero three seven three zero. Please also note that these tapes are not copyrighted, and we therefore encourage you to copy and distribute them to whomever you deem would benefit. As we come to consider Eliot's devastating critique of preterism, several questions naturally arise. What is preterism? Why is it important? Who teaches it in our day? And what are Eliot's credentials in speaking to the subject? Before beginning my narration, therefore, I'll present some answers to these questions. First, I'll be reading a brief synopsis of the major schools of prophetical interpretation, which was originally published in the mid-1800s in the Reformed Presbyterian magazine. Second, I'll include a quotation from a recent article by Preterist Gary DeMar, who, like Ken Gentry, the late Greg Bonson, and others, promotes this erroneous view of prophecy a succinct and definitive rebuttal via 19th-century author Patrick Fairbairn will follow. Finally, I'll overview Eliot's book by way of the publisher's summary and indicate which sections I'll be including. First, then, the article, Apocalyptic Interpretation. Since the time of the Great Reformation, there have been no less than six prominent theories of interpretation, each claiming for itself the palm of merit and all demanding the unanimous suffrage of the Christian Church, They are subjoined in the following order. Number 1. The Anti-Protestant Futurist Theory The originator of this theory was a Spanish Jesuit priest, Ribera by name, who in the year 1585 published a commentary on the Revelation, in which he labored to turn aside the Protestant application of the apocalyptic prophecies and symbols from the Church of Rome. The opinion had matured into settled conviction in the minds of many, that the great apostasy spoken of in the scriptures was papal, and that the little horn of Daniel, the antichrist of John, the man of sin mentioned by Paul, and the apocalyptic beast were all identical. Against this view, Rivera originated the futurist theory. It is so called because it passes by the papacy, overleaps almost the whole immense interval of time between the date of the apocalypse and the distant future, and holds that the events symbolized in the Apocalypse refer to the immediate antecedents or accompaniments of Christ's second coming. It argues a parallelism between the events of the seven seals and the successive signs of Christ's coming, as specified in his prophecy on Mount Olivet. Antichrist is not regarded as the papacy, but avowed infidelity. Number 2. The Anti-Protestant Preterite Theory, or Preterism This was originated by a Spanish Jesuit also, Alcazar of Seville, who, in the year 1615, published a work having in view the same end as Ribera, that is, to set aside the Protestant application of the apocalyptic prophecies and symbols. Ribera endeavored to throw everything forward into the future. Alcazar endeavored to throw everything backward into the past. He stops short in the course of history and makes all the apocalyptic symbols to have been fulfilled within the first five or six centuries. The Germanic neuronic form, so-called because it dates the apocalypse, an essential point for interpreters, about the end of Nero's reign, A.D. 67, and because it is thus regarded by the critical, rationalistic school of German expositors and by Professor Stewart in America. According to this view, the Apocalypse can only refer to the overthrow of Judaism and heathenism and the triumph of Christianity, but not to the papacy. The early date, that is, A.D. 67, makes room for supposing a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, and the sixth centuries for the overthrow of heathenism and the prevalence of Christianity, but not for the demolition of the Roman Catholic Church. The papal Domitianic form, so-called because it fixes the date of the apocalypse about the end of Domitian's reign, A.D. 96, and in this form prevails with the papacy. Of course, this form of the theory excludes application of the symbols of the apocalypse to the destruction of Jerusalem, which occurred 25 years previous to this date, inasmuch as the events recorded were to come into being after the time John wrote. See Revelation 4, verse 1. The fall of Judaism and the doom of the Roman Catholic Church are not referred to at all, but only the overthrow of heathenism and the triumph of Christianity. Such is the loose and wholesale mode of generalizing in these two forms of preterism, the latter of which has yet some truth, that any upstart has a precedent before him for applying the apocalyptic symbols to the destruction of any enemy he pleases. 3. The Modified Futurist Theory This theory resulted from a conviction in the minds of the futurists themselves that great violence had been done to the apocalypse by completely closing its lips upon the subject of the papacy and by causing it to pass over in silence the stirring events of more than a thousand years. Such a scheme was too dashing and bold to escape merciless criticism and ridicule. It failed to secure the respect and confidence of its own supporters. Certain futurists have endeavored to modify it, in other words, to Protestantize futurism and conciliate the friendship of the of the historical interpreters the chief points of supposed improvement are two first with reference to the violent plunge into the distant future and second with reference to the anti-protestantism thus the white horse and rider of the first seal represent the triumphant progress of christ and his gospel until now we are near the time of the end when the papacy will become the apocalyptic beast and Rome the apocalyptic Babylon but not Antichrist and soon Antichrist will appear when the remaining seals will receive their fulfillment and then the grand consummation will take place Four, the typical spiritual theory we coin this name for want of a better designation or rather because the advocates of it have not given a satisfactory one themselves it holds that prophecy is not an anticipation of history but deals alone with the idea of good and evil. A particular man, city, or nation may be taken as the representative or type of such idea to be fulfilled, as intimated in a lofty spiritual but not low historical sense. The details of literal history are not ample enough to satisfy the foreannounced demands of prophecy. Thus Rome papal answers only partly to the apocalyptic Babylon And hence, as ancient Babylon was only partly the subject of anti-Babylonic prophecies, so Rome papal is only partly the subject of anti-papal prophecies in the Revelation. There can only be an imperfect historical fulfillment in any case, and we must wait for a realization, not literally, but spiritually, of the grand idea, that is, the downfall of the true Babylon, which is the world, as opposed to the Church. The influence of German philosophy in the fabrication of this theory is evident. Number five, the parallel septenary theory. This is one of the two principal Protestant theories which have divided the opinions of Orthodox interpreters. It argues against considering the Apocalypse as a progressive whole evolving its events in continuous succession. Instead of regarding the seven trumpets as the development of the seventh seal, just as the seven vials appear to be of the seventh trumpet, it considers them as parallel chronologically and supplementary to each other, each septenary, Or, group of sevens, running from John's time to the consummation. It is eminently a church scheme, the church itself being the subject of the prophetic figurations in its sevenfold phase from the beginning to the end. This theory was brought into repute by Parius and Vitringa shortly after the Reformation. Number six, the continuous historical Protestant theory. This was the principal theory which attracted the attention of the most orthodox and enlightened expositors until the earliest part of this century. It looks upon prophecy as an actual anticipation of veritable history. It regards each seal as successor to the preceding in chronological order, each trumpet and each vial in the same way, and, objecting to the previous theory, maintains that the septenary of trumpets are subsequent to the septenary of seals, and the septenary of vials subsequent to the septenary of trumpets. The exclusive church scheme is discarded and the apocalypse is viewed as setting forth, in regular progression and detail, the chief secular and ecclesiastical events of the existing dispensation. An anti-papal solution is given to the symbols and predictions respecting the beast. It was the theory of the Waldenses, Wycliffites, and Hussites and the great body of the Reformers of the 16th century, German, Swiss, French, English, generally received it. It has been the view of the vast majority of Scottish Presbyterians. It was also the view of many prominent American divines, from Edwards to the 19th century Princeton theologians, the Alexanders, the Hodges, Miller, etc. It is preeminently the theory of the Reformation, and therefore has been violently opposed by Roman Catholics' prelatists, rationalizing expositors, and other foes of Reformation principles. Next, we consider Gary DeMar's assertions and Patrick Fairbairn's rebuttal. And this is excerpted from the conclusion of DeMar's article in Biblical Worldview magazine, September 2000. And the name of the article is, Who Wants to be an Historian? Quote, While the Roman Catholic Church has serious doctrinal problems and a long history of persecution, it is not the biblical Antichrist. First, the prophecies outlined in the New Testament related to the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, and the beast refer to events and personages of the first century. The time texts make this clear. And he refers us to his book Last Day's Madness. Second, the Roman Catholic Church does not fit the biblical definition of Antichrist and he quotes 2 John, verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Roman Catholics subscribe to the Apostles' Creed and other creole formulations also accepted by Protestants. When I was growing up Roman Catholic and was finally introduced to the gospel when I was a senior in college, I did not have to reformulate my beliefs about the nature of God, the divinity of Jesus, or the inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible. I saw that justification by faith alone and sola scriptura were the fundamentals that forced me to separate myself from Roman Catholicism. It was only later, after reading the Bible, that I found other Roman Catholic errors, transubstantiation, mariology, a celibate priesthood, indulgences, the magisterium, and so forth. In response to this rather remarkable approach to identifying false teachers, especially the man of sin and son of perdition of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, is Patrick Fairbairn's Appendix L, page 367, in his 1864 treatment, The Interpretation of Prophecy, which is also available from Stillwaters. This excerpt has been put into a tract and bears the title, Is Popery the Antichrist? The tendency of prophecy to describe things according to the reality, rather than the appearance or profession. The interpretation which has been given in the text of the strongest terms in the Apostles' language respecting the Antichrist, by understanding them of a virtual, in contradistinction to a formal and avowed assumption of blasphemous prerogatives, is so much in accordance with the general style of prophecy, and so plainly demanded by the connection, that we cannot refrain from expressing our wonder at finding interpreters of note still pressing the opposite view. Their doing so must be regarded as another instance of that tendency to literalism which has wrought such confusion in the prophetical field, and which, at particular points, returns upon some who in general have attained to a correct discernment of the characteristics of prophecy. The practice of describing things by their real, as opposed to their professed or apparent character, is one that peculiarly distinguishes the apocalyptic imagery. Thus, the worldly kingdoms, both in Daniel and the Revelation, are represented as beasts, not that they actually were or gave themselves out to be such, but because they pursued a course which partook largely of the bestial nature. They were, one might say, virtual beasts. And the false seductive power designated Babylon, the mother of harlots and abominations, we may be sure was not going to proclaim her own shame by declaring herself to be what those epithets import. Beyond all doubt, she is described according to what she really was, not by what she would profess to be. In like manner, the names of blasphemy on the head of the beast indicate a real rather than a professed dishonor to the God of heaven, for open profanity and avowed atheism have, with few exceptions, been studiously avoided by the worldly power. It is almost uniformly striven to associate with its different forms of government and political aims the name and sanctions of religion. Even in the more prosaic parts of the Apocalypse we find the same characteristic prevailing as when it describes the soaring spirit of the Gnostic teachers by their knowing the depths of Satan not those of God which they themselves rather affected to understand and designates them by such epithets as Nicolaitians that is people destroyers followers of Balaam Jezebel's which they were so far from professing to be that they laid claim to the highest gifts and the most honorable distinctions Nor could it be otherwise with the wolves of whose coming St. Paul warned the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. They were not going, when they appeared, to avow their own wolf-like character, but would, doubtless, aspire to the place of guides and shepherds of the flock. All prophecy, indeed, abounds with examples of this mode of representation, for, speaking as with divine intuition, it ever delights to penetrate through showy appearances and to strip deceivers of their false disguises. Thus the self-deifying pride of the Chaldean conquerors has its representation in the prophet Habakkuk by their being characterized as successful fishers sacrificing to their own net. Chapter 1, verse 16. And the corruption of degenerate Israel is exhibited with singular boldness by Ezekiel under the form of their having had an Amorite father and a Hittite mother. Chapter 16, verse 3. And by Isaiah, under the announcement as from themselves, that they had made a covenant with death and come to an agreement with hell. Chapter 28, verse 15 By a still bolder figure, the prophet Amos calls the tabernacle in the wilderness the the tabernacle of their Moloch because their idolatrous and unsanctified spirit, which still clung to them, rendered it practically an idol tent rather than that of the true God. Chapter 5, verse 26 These and many similar representations are obviously designed to set before us the real state and character of the parties described, though entirely different from the outward profession and appearance. On any other principle, it were impossible to render much that is written in prophecy, either intelligible in itself or consistent with the facts of history. The violation of this principle in regard to the passages which treat of the anti-Christian apostasy by adhering to a mistaken literalism is the more to be regretted, as it is doing with this portion of the prophetic scriptures what it has already done with those that have respect to the promised Messiah. It is altogether destroying in the hands of its abettors their apologetic value. As with the one class of predictions, Jewish rabbis find themselves backed by Christian literalists in denying the fulfillment of some of the clearest prophetic intimations in the history of Jesus of Nazareth, So Romish controversialists are sheltering themselves under the wing of Protestant interpreters of the same school in rebutting the application of the scriptural antichrist to popery. Thus, in a small volume recently published on The End of the World or the Second Coming of Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by the very Reverend John Baptist Pagani, a very adroit use is made of the name of the late Mr. Faber. An astonishment is first expressed that that any intelligent person could ever have thought of identifying the Pope of Rome with the Antichrist of Scripture, especially that this could be done in so enlightened a country as England, and then a passage from Mr. Faber's Calendar of Prophecy is quoted to show how a sensible Protestant writer exposes the absurdity of the idea. In the passage referred to, the argument is thrown into what is considered both by Mr. Faber and by his Catholic admirer a conclusive syllogism. I shall throw my argument, Mr. Faber says, into the form of a syllogism, and if any person be able to confute me, I shall be very ready to own myself mistaken. According to St. John, he who denies the Father and the Son, this is the Antichrist. The line of Roman pontiffs did not deny the Father or the Son, therefore the line of the Roman pontiffs is not the Antichrist. Close quote. Embracing with satisfaction this triumphant syllogism, Mr. Pagani proceeds to give it additional strength by affirming that so far from denying the Father and the Son, the Roman pontiffs have always maintained the doctrine of the Trinity against deists, sabellians Unitarians, and other heretics, that they have uniformly held that Christ has come in the flesh, that they have also been remarkably distinguished for their humility, taking for their ordinary title unworthy ministers of Christ, servants of the servants of God, whereas Antichrist is to exalt himself above all that is called God. One might go through a considerable portion of prophecy with this sort of syllogism and ask in vain for anything in the transactions of real life that would answer to the terms of the predictions. What, on such a style of interpretation, could be made of the passages to which we have been adverting? Must we suspend the veracity of one prophet on the question whether the proud Chaldeans actually hung up a net in some temple and did sacrifice to it? or that of another on the similar question, whether the Israelites literally bore about during their long sojourn in the wilderness an idolatrous tabernacle in impious rivalry to that of Jehovah, or must we have credible testimony to the fact that the great worldly monarchies, as they successively arose, did each proclaim their own beast-like and blasphemous character? Or, finally, shall we hold that nothing can verify the description given of the mystic Babylon, which does not set itself openly to establish and avow the prostitution of all righteous principle? If such be the kind of expectations with which we proceed to examine the prophetic word, we may certainly lay our account to meet with few instances of fulfillment. We know not where they are to be found in the past, and are afraid they shall be in vain looked for in the future. But surely, if the Apostle in his day knew persons in the Christian Church whom he could declare to be the enemies of the cross of Christ, even while they were avowedly looking to that cross for salvation, the Pontiffs of Rome might justly enough be characterized as denying the Father and the Son if they should be found claiming prerogatives and upholding a system of error and delusion which virtually subvert the revelation given of the Father and Son in Scripture let it just be granted that in the descriptions of the collective Antichrist the Apostles had their eye on the realities, not on the mere appearances of things, no very extravagant postulate, surely, then the proper syllogism will stand thus. The Antichrist, according to St. John, is he who denies the Father and the Son. But the line of the Roman pontiffs, by their own blasphemous assumptions and by their system of legalized falsehood and corruption, utterly opposed to the spirit and design of the gospel, have denied what is revealed of the Father and the Son. Therefore, the line of the Roman Pontiffs is Antichrist. This we take to be a truer form of the syllogism than Mr. Favors. But it, the syllogism, only meets one fallacy involved in the interpretation. There is another, that is, another fallacy, in its taking for granted that the representations in John's epistles are to be regarded as comprehensive of all that was to characterize the spirit and conduct of Antichrist. He merely points to one of the first forms and manifestations of the evil, that which took shape under the hands of the Gnostic teachers. By and by this was to lead on to others, of which not less distinct intimation was given elsewhere in the New Testament writings. The anti-Christian spirit was to assume different phases according to the peculiar influences of the time and the changing fortunes of the Church. But they were all to have one thing in common. Under a profession of Christianity, there was to be something in doctrine or practice which, in effect, made void the Christian truth in life. This in every form was to be the characteristic of anti-Christianism as contradistinguished from atheism, heathenism, or undisguised worldliness and hence so far from expecting that the popes or any other embodiments of the Antichrist should formally assume what is predicted of this power we would rather expect the reverse we should expect a studious effort to disguise the truth of the case though such a one as should only impose upon the ignorant or the corrupt and precisely as the servant of servants that is the pope can in lordly arrogance place his foot upon the necks of princes and claim the ascendancy over all earthly power and authority, so under a boastful proclamation of the doctrine of the Trinity and the conversion of the cross into a magic charm, may there be found the most substantial denial of the Father and the Son. In a word, the question is not what popery pretends to be, but what it really is. With this alone we have to do in determining its relation to the prophetic delineations of Scripture. And when the subject is viewed in this light, he must be strangely blinded or unhappily biased who fails to perceive the striking correspondence between the one and the other. And now then, finally, the publisher's summary of Eliot's work, and then an outline of my narration. The title of the work is Horae Apocalypticae, or A Commentary on the Apocalypse, Critical and Historical, including also an examination of the chief prophecies of Daniel and this is the 1862 fifth edition by Edward Eliot. The title continues, illustrated by an apocalyptic chart and engravings from metals and other extant monuments of antiquity, with appendices containing, besides other matters, a sketch of the history of apocalyptic interpretation, critical reviews of the chief apocalyptic counter-schemes and indices. This four-volume set is respected by many as a scholarly work on eschatology, It will be especially valuable in our day as it absolutely destroys the Jesuit-inspired preterist system by conclusively proving a late date for the writing of the book of Revelation. Eliot also demonstrates the impossibility of the futurist system, which, like preterism, was also concocted as a system by the Jesuits to counteract the classic Reformation eschatology called historicism. That this is no small issue is clear, as Kevin Reed exhibits in his book review titled The Ecclesiology of John Fox, a book review by Kevin Reed of the book John Fox and the Elizabethan Church by V. Norskov Olson, published by the University of California Press in 1973, by citing Olson when he writes, The Counter-Reformation is generally considered to have three aspects, the Jesuits, the Inquisition, and the Council of Trent. In view of the significance of the Protestant apocalyptic interpretation of history, which prophetically pinpointed step by step the events covering the whole Christian era from the beginning to the end, it seems justifiable to suggest a fourth aspect, namely the preteristic and futuristic interpretations launched by Catholic expositors as a counterattack. And that was from page 47 of Olson's book. All the major reformers and all the major Reformation creeds and confessions adopted the historicist position, and it is this position that Eliot so skillfully defends. Included in Horae Apocalypticae, he will also find a very useful historical survey of who held which positions concerning eschatology, much history on the Roman Empire and its interaction with Christianity, how the Reformation, Islam, and so forth were prophesied in the Apocalypse, a world chronology according to the Hebrew Scriptures, which would make the earth 6127 years old, patristic views of prophecy, the beast and his mark, 666, revealed, and much more. The papacy is also shown to be the apocalyptic Antichrist, which was a standard position among the Reformers. Eliot also deals with Moses Stewart's preterism. And now a quote taken from the website www.historicist.com. Furthermore, in 1878, Charles H. Spurgeon wrote the classic reference work Commenting on Commentaries. The Prince of Preachers surveyed over 1,400 commentaries on the books of the Bible, providing Bible students and pastors with a valuable guide for selecting books for their libraries. His comments are often as entertaining as they are helpful. Each book of the Bible forms a chapter in this work. Spurgeon provides pithy analysis and offers his recommendation of the best commentary and those to avoid. When he reaches the Book of Revelation, his clear recommendation is E. B. Eliot's Horae Apocalypticae. He succinctly states that it was, quote, the standard work. It would surprise most Baptists today to realize that this most eminent Baptist preacher was himself an historicist, or continuist, as he called it then. Eliot's work was the standard work in 1878 because the historicist interpretation was still the standard in Protestantism, and this work had gone through four editions and it established itself as the standard within the Historicist School. Eliot had died three years earlier in 1875. And now some biographical information taken again from uh, www.historicist.com and they are there quoting from The Prophetic Faith of Our Fathers by Leroy Froome. Edward Bishop Eliot, 1793-1875 to 1875, scholarly prophetic expositor, received his education at Trinity College, Cambridge, graduating in 1816. After traveling in Italy and Greece, he was given the vicarage of Tuxford, Nottingham in 1824, and later was made prebendary of Hatesbury, Wiltshire. In 1849, he became incumbent of St. Mark's Church, Brighton. A member of the Evangelical School, he was an earnest promoter of missionary enterprise and an ardent advocate of premillennialism. Eliot was thoroughly equipped as a scholar and and was deeply interested in prophecy, spending a lifetime in investigation and seeking to understand God's mind thereon. His Hore Apocalypticae, or hours with the apocalypse, or literally time with the apocalypse, is doubtless the most elaborate word ever produced on the apocalypse. Begun in 1837, its 2,500 pages of often involved and overloaded text are buttressed by some 10,000 invaluable references to ancient and modern works bearing on the topics under discussion. Perhaps its most unique feature is the concluding sketch of the rise and spread of the Jesuit counter-systems of interpretation that had made such inroads upon Protestantism. Holding unswervingly to the historical school of interpretation, Eliot gives the most complete exposure of these counter-interpretations to be found. Sadly, one major warning needs to be given about this book. However valuable the contents are as a defense of historicism and the late date of the book of Revelation, the author adopted the premillennial heresy and thus marred an otherwise useful work when he promotes these views. The work itself is 2,611 pages with a 29-page index and is available in four volumes from Stillwater's Revival Books. And now to outline my narration. As we've seen, the dating of the book of Revelation is of enormous importance to its interpretation. If it was written near the end of the first century, then obviously those who hold that much of its fulfillment took place in the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, some twenty-five years before, are grossly mistaken. The first two excerpts, therefore, have to do with the date of its composition and discuss both internal, that is, within the scripture itself, and external that is, from extra-biblical historical information, evidence. The third portion discusses the biblical interpretation of the prophesied time period during which Antichrist would reign, tyrannizing over the faithful church. This is expressed in Daniel and Revelation as time, times and a half, 42 months, and 1260 days, all of which are not only equivalent in length, but clearly refer to the same period. The question is, do these refer to a literal 1260 days, or are they applied metaphorically? This section from Eliot therefore demonstrates from Scripture, with additional historical evidence, the scriptural year-day principle, as seen, for instance, in Ezekiel 4, verses 4-6, through and Numbers 14, verse 34. Again, interpreting this prophesied era using the scripturally requisite year-day principle eliminates and overthrows the preterist position and I would note that I'll only be reading portions of that section. Finally, we'll read Eliot's examination and refutation of major points in the Preterist system itself, wherein he demonstrates its irrecoverable inconsistencies and contradictions. Throughout these sections, I'll be omitting most of the footnotes, as they tend to be technical and don't add to the narrative value. I would encourage the listener to purchase this set for himself for its full reference value from Stillwater's Revival Books. It is my prayer that Eliot's treatment will not only inoculate the listener to the dangerous errors of the unscriptural, anti-reformational, Jesuitical preterist system, but will whet his appetite for a proper study of this marvelous part of God's Word, which promises blessing to all who hear and keep the words of this prophecy. We turn first to essay number two, which is in volume one of Hore Apocalyptica and is entitled The Date of the Apocalypse. This is my second preliminary point of inquiry, and one on which also, I believe, the historical evidence will be found not only ready at hand, but conclusive. For the testimony of Irenaeus, Polycarp's disciple, let it be again remembered, who was himself the disciple of the Apostle John, is as expressed to the point in question as it is unexceptionable. Speaking of the name and number of the beast in the Apocalypse, He says that had this been a matter then to be made known, it would have been disclosed by him who saw the Apocalypse, that is, John, quote, For it, the Apocalypse, evidently, was seen no very long time ago, but almost in our age, towards the end of the reign of Domitian, close quote. The attempts that have been made to get rid of this testimony and force another meaning on Irenaeus' words by those whose apocalyptic theories made them wish to do so seem to me to have utterly failed. It is as clear a testimony on the point it relates to as there can be found to any other fact in any other historian. Nor is it unsupported by other testimony. First, Tertullian seems in no dubious manner to indicate this view of the apocalyptic date, for in his apology, after specifying Nero's as the first imperial persecution, and this one by the sword, wherein, as he elsewhere says, Paul and Peter suffered, no mention being made of John, He proceeds to notice Domitians as the next persecution, and this is one in which Christians suffered by banishment, the well-known punishment inflicted on St. John. It is evident that Eusebius thus understands Tertullian, I mean as alluding to St. John's banishment as the act of Domitian. Next, Clement of Alexandria indirectly, but I think clearly, confirms the statement. In speaking the well-known story of St. John and the robber, he speaks of it as acted out by the Apostle on his return from exile in Patmos, quote, after the death of the tyrant, close quote, and represents him as at that time an infirm old man. Now the tyrant whose death is referred to must necessarily be either Nero or Domitian, as these were up to the end of the first century, the only imperial persecutors of the Christian body. And Nero it can scarcely be, since at the time of Nero's presentation St. John was by no means an infirm old man, being probably not much above, if indeed so much as, sixty years of age. Thus it must rather have been the tyrant Domitian. So, in fact, Eusebius expressly explains Clement to me. Nor is there anything whatsoever inconsistent with this view of the chronology of the story, so as some have supposed, in Chrysostom's second-hand version of it, but the contrary. Thirdly, Victorinus, bishop of Pataw, and martyr in Diocletian's persecution, in a commentary on the Apocalypse written towards the close of the third century, says twice over expressly, and in a part that bears no mark of interpolation, that the Apocalypse was seen by the Apostle John in the Isle of Patmos when banished thither by the Roman emperor Domitian. To the same effect, fourthly, is the very important testimony of Eusebius, for though doubting about the author of the apocalyptic book and in these doubts we see exemplified the free exercise of his independent judgment yet on the date of St. John's banishment to Patmos he distinctly intimates more than once his agreement with the tradition of the ancients that it referred to Domitian's persecution and indeed implies as is perfectly evident that he knew of no other tradition whatsoever as to the time of St. John's banishment to Patmos the same as the recorded judgment of Jerome the same of Augustine's friend Orosius, the same of Sulpicius Severus. Once more, we find an unhesitating statement of similar support in Primacius, an eminent Augustinian commentator on the Apocalypse of the 6th century. In his preface to this commentary, he speaks of the apocalyptic visions having been seen by St. John when banished and condemned to the mines in Patmos by the Emperor Domitian. Other ancient testimonies of less importance might yet be added. Such is the later and subsidiary patristic testimony still extant, to the fact of St. John having seen the apocalyptic visions in Patmos under the reign of Domitian, a chain of testimony not to be viewed, so as Tillich would quite unwarrantably represent it, as but the repetition of that of Irenaeus, whom indeed for the most part these writers did not even refer to, but rather as their own deliberate independent judgment formed on all the evidence which then existed." As to any contrary early tradition respecting the date, if such there was, as Sir Isaac Newton and Tillock, still without any warrant of historic record, have assumed, it can scarcely have been unknown to them, and their total silence respecting it is only explicable on one of two suppositions, that is, either that it did not exist, or that they deemed it undeserving of credit and not even worth the notice. Nor can this be wondered at, seeing that as to any contrary statement on the point in question, There appears to have been none whatsoever until the time of Epiphanius, bishop of Salamis in Cyprus, in the latter half of the fourth century. A writer commendable indeed, as Dupin says, for, quote, zeal, learning, and piety, but credulous, indiscriminating, inaccurate, close quote, and whose chief work on heresies is decried by Mosheim as, quote, full of blots and errors through the levity and ignorance of the author, close quote. Who, moreover, in his statement in that work on this very point, supposing it correctly given and not an error of transcription in our copies, so exemplifies this ignorance as quite to justify the silent neglect of it by those writers of Arcatina, that is, Jerome, Orosius, Sulpicius, and Primatius who wrote after him. For he speaks of St. John having prophesied when in the Isle of Patmos, in the days of the Emperor Claudius a time when, as Michaelis justly observes, it does not appear from history that there was any imperial persecution of the Christian body whatsoever, and when, moreover, the probability is that of the seven apocalyptic churches scarce one was as yet in existence, and the Apostle John, moreover, in no way associated with the district. And he says in a footnote, The reader should remember that in the Acts and the Apostolic Epistles we have an authentic history and series of historical notices descriptive of the state of the Christian Church throughout the whole of the reign of Claudius, which reign lasted only from A.D. 41 to 54, so that we are perfectly in a situation to compare the facts of the case with the Epiphanian theory as to the time of the apocalyptic publication, and so to convince ourselves of its falsehood. Returning to the text, But indeed, one is almost forced to suspect some strange error in the transcriber, For Epiphanius elsewhere implies John's age to have been 90 at the time of his return from Patmos. And can we suppose that he really thought John to have been 90 years old before A.D. 54, which was the latest year of the life of Claudius, or near 70 when called by Christ to be his disciple? Besides which strange theory, we are reminded by Newton and Tillich of yet another testimony to the early date of the Apocalypse. The subscription to a Syriac version of the book written about the beginning of the 6th century is thus worded, quote, The revelation which was made by God to John the Evangelist in the island of Patmos whither he was banished by the Emperor Nero, close quote. But of what value is this opinion then first broached as it would appear? Or again, of what that of the commentator Arethas promulgated still two or three centuries later to the effect that the Apocalypse was written before the destruction of Jerusalem, an opinion contradicted indeed elsewhere in the body of his work by himself. Alike the one and the other slept unnoticed for centuries, and, if waked up by critics of a more modern age, it has only been, as Michaelis we have seen confesses, from the supposed necessity of such dates in order to any possible explanation of the apocalyptic prophecies. It does not need that I discuss at all prominently certain points of indirect and subsidiary historical evidence in favor of an early date which these writers have also called into their aid, a sufficient notice of them will be found below, and it will appear that they all, like the direct testimony just discussed, prove weak and worthless on examination. And then he has an extensive footnote discussing them, which I will omit. Nor will the only other evidence offered on their side, evidence internal in its character, and which has been urged of late years with great earnestness and some effect by Dr. Tillich and others, after Sir Isaac and Bishop Newton, be found at all better able to bear examination. For what is the main argument of this kind? It is founded on certain marked similarities discoverable, as they suppose, in sundry epistles of Peter and Paul, written before Nero's death, to passages of the Apocalypse, whence they infer that the Apocalypse was written first, and the epistles afterwards. Now, in a question of this kind, it is important, indeed essential, to distinguish between cases of reference to some antecedent writing, whether direct or by means of the article or pronouns demonstrative, and those of mere similarity of thought or expression. Of the former class of examples adduced by these critics from the Apostolic Epistles, there is not one, I believe, which is not explicable as a reference to the previous prophecies of the Old Testament. As to cases of mere similarity and coincidence of thought, if we may often see much of it even in uninspired writings, without implying imitation on the part of one or other of the writers, how much more may we expect undesigned resemblances in inspired writings, such as are both the epistles and book of the Apocalypse spoken of, seeing that, though written by different human penmen, they were inspired by one and the same divine spirit which spirit may just as well be supposed to have dictated an idea or a brief sketch to St. Peter and St. Paul, which was afterwards to be developed in the finished pictures of the Apocalypse of St. John, as to have been spoken by those first-mentioned apostles in terms or figures borrowed from the previous promulged pictures of the Apocalypse. All this is very evident, and with it the exceeding danger of arguing, so as Newton and Tillich have done, for the chronological priority of the Apocalypse from any supposed imitations of it which they may think to trace in one or another of the Apostolic Epistles. This is the end of Side 1. Please turn to Dr. Tillich himself that we owe the setting forth of the utter unsoundness and error of this their argument in the clearest light. For he has plainly shown that on this principle there must be allowed proof of reference to the Apocalypse in St. Paul's two Epistles to the Thessalonians proof as conclusive as in any other case, which two epistles were, however, notoriously written before ever a Christian church was founded at Ephesus, much more before it had any episcopal angel presiding over it, such as was addressed in the first of the apocalyptic epistles by the Lord Jesus, and the same very much in regard of the first epistle to the Corinthians, which also, as we have seen, Dr. T strongly argues to have been post-apocalyptic, seeing that it was almost certainly written before the foundation of any of the seven Asiatic churches but that of Ephesus. So as to the primary argument of these writers to prove an early date from internal evidence, a secondary class of arguments from internal evidence derived from the allusions that we find in the apocalypse to the Israelitish tribes and the holy city temple and altar, as if, say they, the Jewish city, temple, and altar were still standing, is even yet more obviously inconclusive. For it takes for granted that those expressions are meant literally of the old Jerusalem and Israel, not figuratively of the Christian Church, a point which not only have they not proved, but which I am well persuaded, and we shall see soon that the persuasion expressed is not without reason, they never can prove. Yet a few words ere I conclude on two or three corroborative points of evidence Drawn both from profane history and scripture. First, it would seem from historic report very questionable whether Nero's persecution of Christians extended far beyond the precincts of Rome itself, a circumstance which, if true, nor is it contradicted by any distinct Christian ecclesiastical record of the first four centuries, negatives of itself the idea of St. John having been banished in his persecution to the mines at Patmos. Secondly, They furnish no evidence that in Nero's persecution banishment to the islands, with its usual penal accompaniments, was one of the punishments then put in force against accused Christians, whereas on the other hand we have direct profane historic testimony in proof that that particular punishment was enforced against persons accused of Christianity in the persecution by Domitian. The illustrative case of the noble Senator Clemens' equally noble wife, Domitilla, will readily occur to the memory of the classic reader. To which, let me add, thirdly, that it appears from Tacitus that about the sixth year of Nero, or A.D. 60, the city of Laodicea was destroyed by an earthquake, in which earthquake, according to Eusebius, the adjacent cities of Colossae and Herapolis were also involved. Now, as regards Laodicea itself, we read in Tacitus that before he wrote it was rebuilt, the exact time of its restoration not being specified by him, but which, according to such memorials as exist, seems to have been completed not till some ten or twelve years after, perhaps in the reign of Vespasian. Which time of the city's restoration is, of course, quite inconsistent with the idea of a Laodicean church existing at the epoch of Nero's persecution, much more with the state of wealth and luxury ascribed to it in the apocalyptic epistle. On the other hand, on the hypothesis of a Domitianic date to the apocalypse, the testimony of these monumental memorials well consists with the idea of Laodicean prosperity sketched in the epistle. While at the same time, the non-restoration, according to existing monuments of both Hierapolis and Colossae before Domitian's death, quite accounts for the silence at that time in the apocalyptic letter about Colossae and Hierapolis. How rash, then, Dr. Tillich's argument from this silence for a neuronic date, even if considered only in the light of profane or secular history, how much more rash when considered also in the light of the adverse evidence derivable from the scriptures themselves, in which scriptures, not to revert to what has been argued from other of St. Paul's epistles, we have in fine his second to Timothy, then Bishop of Ephesus, written according to the most probable and generally received opinion, just before his death under the neuronic persecution, and which gives not a hint of the Apostle John's being even then established in that neighborhood, or expected, or of any such new churches having been formed there as are addressed in five out of the seven letters to the Asiatic churches. Besides that the state of those churches as apocalyptically described seems to indicate a considerable interval of time from that of their first founding so for example very specially in the case of the Ephesian church which is charged with having then left its first love. Thus to conclude The varied historical evidence that has been inquired into all concurs to confirm the date originally and expressly assigned by Irenaeus to the Apocalypse as seen and written at the close of the reign of Domitian, that is, near the end of the year 95 or beginning of 96. Accordingly, the great majority hitherto of the most approved ecclesiastical historians and biblical critics, alike Roman Catholic and Protestant, French, German, and English, Writers who have had no bias on the point in question, one way or the other, from any particular cherished theory of apocalyptic interpretation, for example Tillamont, Dupin, Bossuet, Leclerc, Turretin, Spanheim, Bosnage, Lampy, Mosheim, Mill, Whitby, Lardner, and so forth, have all alike adopted it. To whom I am happy to add the more modern names of the German ecclesiastical historian Geisler as well as of our own church historians, Burton and Waddington also, and the very learned classical chronologist, Fines Clinton. We may, I am persuaded, depend on its correctness with as unhesitating and implicit confidence as on the truth of almost any of the lesser facts recorded in history. The important bearing of the true apocalyptic date on apocalyptic interpretation will soon appear. And then Eliot says in a footnote, Since the above was printed in my first edition, I have seen the American theological professor Moses Stewart's apocalyptic commentary, published in 1845, shortly after my own. A commentary, the result, he says, of twenty years' thought and labor, and in which, after Lukey and others of the more modern German school, he contends strongly for the neuronic date. As the commentary is thus elaborate, and he asserts that, quote, it is now a matter agreed on by nearly all the recent critics who have studied the literature of this book, that it was written under the bloody reign of Nero, or shortly after, close quote, I feel it right not to omit a consideration of his argument. Accordingly, in the appendix to the present volume, there will be found a review of whatever new argument or evidence may have been adduced by any of the more recent writers of the German school in favor of a neurotic date more especially by Professor Stewart himself. I am well persuaded that the review will only result in a confirmation of what I have written above. And it's to that review that we now turn, in Appendix Number 1 to Volume 1, entitled, Notice of the Arguments of Professors Lukey and Moses Stewart for the Galbaic or Neuronic Date of the Apocalypse. Subsequently to the printing of the greater part of my second edition, Professor Moses Stewart's apocalyptic commentary came into my hands, the result, it is said, of some twenty years thought and labor, and, after the publication of that edition, the Ein to a commentary there promised by Professor Lukey. And I have carefully looked into both the one and the other to see by what new evidence or argument they might seek to justify the neuronic date, on which, in fact, their systems are alike mainly based. The argument occupies in Moses Stewart from pages 263 to 284 of his first volume, in Lucie the sections 29 and 44, beginning at pages 245 and 403, respectively. The greater part of the ground I have already gone over, but there are some points new. And, as the subject is so important, the advocates on the side I oppose so well known for ability and learning, their assertion of the correctness of their view so dogmatic and positive, And moreover, a movement of mind among some of the more literary in this country, especially of the dissenting body, has been lately manifested in unison with the German and American professors. I think it right to put the reader in full possession of their arguments and evidence, of Professor Stewart's more particularly, as having written latest and perused and made use of Lukey. Their argument embraces, of course, both the external evidence, that of historical testimony, and the internal Let me notice what seems noticeable in it upon either head. Roman numeral 1 Professor Lukey's and Stewart's External or Historical Evidence Number 1 And here in his opening summary, Professor Stewart admits distinctly in the first instance the futility of the attempts that have been made to get rid of Irenaeus' famous testimony asserting the Domitianic date by supplying another nominative case instead of apocalypsis the verb et orathe, so as I have stated at page 33 above, whether Iones on Wetstein's principle, or Onama on knittles and stores, or the beast on that of the Latin translator, an admission in which Lucy preceded him. And really, the true construction with Apocalypsis is so palpable that one is astonished at this time of day to find any respectable writer so bewildering himself as to attempt the revival of the absurdities that Professor Stewart thus rejects. Also, he here admits, though afterwards we shall see recalling or modifying that admission, as probably to be construed the same way with Irenaeus' testimony, that of Clemens Alexandrinus and that of Tertullian given by me at pages 33 and 34 above fairly observing that Eusebius and Jerome, at least, distinctly so understood and represented the testimony of those early fathers. Nor does Lucie materially differ from him. Further, he adds, on the same Domitianic side, the direct testimonies of Victorinus, Eusebius, Jerome, Sulpicius Severus, Augustine's friend Erosius, and that of the author of a Greek work on the Twelve Apostles, vulgarly ascribed to Hippolytus, to which, let me observe, we may probably add that of Gregory Nissen. Against all which weighty and strong evidence, what has he to oppose? Accepting a dubious passage from Origen, of which, as most important, I deem it best to take notice by itself afterwards, and an anonymous Latin treatise, supposed to be of the date 196, and acknowledged by him to be nearly worthless, there is nothing more than the old names of Epiphanius, the Syriac version's title page, Andreas, Arethas, and Theophylact that is, of Epiphanius advocating a Claudian date, not an Aaronic, and exposing in it withal, as I have shown, his own self-contradiction and absurdity, of the Syriac version, against the generally admitted lateness of which, as being the Philoxenian of about A.D. 500, Professor Stewart has only to state that this is, quote, somewhat doubtful, close quote, and, quote, that it would rather seem that there was a Syriac version of the Apocalypse earlier than the Philoxenian, close quote, because Ephraim Cyrus of the 5th century often appealed to the Apocalypse and quote, is generally supposed not to have understood Greek and hypothesis on an hypothesis of Andreas of the 6th century from whose statement that there were some who applied the Apocalypse or Revelation 6.12 though he himself did not to Titus' destruction of Jerusalem Our American professor argues that, quote, they of course believed that the Apocalypse was composed before that event, whereas since Andreas also states that there were expositors who explained the successive seals of Christ's birth, baptism, ministry, and burial, he might equally well argue that those expositors believed the Apocalypse to have been composed before Christ's birth. Of Arethas, whom Professor Stewart states to have been also of the 6th century, whereas I have proved him to have been as late as, at least as the 8th or ninth, and whose self-contradicting testimony and recognition of the Domitianic date of St. John's banishment to Patmos, also cited by me, the professor states but in part, and therefore unfairly, also finally of Theophilact, a writer of the 11th century. Such, I say, is Professor Stewart's own list of the opposing historic testimonies, and in reviewing and comparing the two lists, what might we expect to be his judicial sentence as to their comparative weight and value? Surely this, that there is in reality no comparison whatsoever between them, the one being so strong, not in respect of number only, but of age, weight of character, and consistency, the other, in every respect, so weak. Instead of this, however, we have the amusing statement, if now the number of the witnesses were the only thing which should control our judgment, we must, so far as external evidence is concerned, yield the palm to those who fix on the time of Domitian. Close quote. There being added, in order to make the other side seem even to preponderate, the assertion that, quote, a careful examination of the matter shows that the whole concatenation of witnesses in favor of the Domitianic date hangs upon the testimony of Irenaeus. Close quote. And, moreover, a most unwarranted depreciation, in spite of certain expressions of respect, of Irenaeus' own testimony. I say a depreciation of Irenaeus' testimony, for it is spoken of as that of a man who lived or wrote some one hundred years after Domitian, and only inferred what he tells us about the apocalyptic date from the apocalypse itself ill understood. Yet did not Irenaeus pass his youth and learn his lessons about St. John, as he himself tells us, at the feet of John's own disciple Polycarp? which latter was martyred within little more than half a century from the Domitianic persecution? As to the asserted dependency of all other testimonies on that of Irenaeus, how does it appear? Does Clement then confess to this, or Tertullian, or Victorin, or even Eusebius, Jerome, Sulpicius, or Orosius? By no means. But because, quote, their evidence is little more than a mere repetition of what Irenaeus has said, close quote, So the professor at page 269. Whereas at page 271, only two pages later, he urges that there are such varieties as to detail in the testimonies on the Domitianic side, Tertullian having apparently placed St. John's return from Patmos before Domitian's death, Clement of Alexandria, Eusebius and Jerome on Nerva's accession after it, and Victorinus added the statement of St. John's being, quote, in Metallum Damnatus "condemned to the mines or quarries" as quote, "makes strongly against any uniform and certain historical tradition with regard to the subject before us." Close quote. and I would remind the listener that he's there quoting professor stewart. The professor here answers himself too well to need any other answer. But I cannot pass from the argument without observing that there seems to me to be somewhat as in the case of the evangelists just enough variety to mark interdependence in the testimony, nothing of such variety as to affect its truth. Number 2. But now comes the testimony of origin, one which, from the importance attached to it alike by Lukey, Stewart and others of the same school, and also as having not at all noticed it in my own sketch of evidence, I have thought best, like Professor Stewart himself, to reserve for separate consideration. The passage is as follows, Quote, but the king of the Romans, as tradition teaches, condemned John, who bore testimony for the word of truth, to the isle of Patmos, and John informs us respecting his own testimony or martyrdom, not stating who condemned him, saying in the apocalypse these things, I, John your brother, and so forth, was in the island that is called Patmos for the word of God, and he seems to have seen the apocalypse in that island. Close quote. I subjoin the original with the immediately preceding context which he does in Greek in a footnote. On this passage, Professor Stewart and his followers thus argue, Origen could not but know Irenaeus' declaration as to Domitian having been the king that banished John. Yet knowing this, he refers not to it as decisive, nor to, to tradition as according with it, and even says that John himself has not decided the question who the king was that banished him, thereby evidently showing that in his judgment the thing was doubtful and not to be decided in any way that Origen knew. A fact most important, considering that, quote, Origen was the greatest critical scholar of the first three centuries, close quote. That's according to Moses Stewart, page 272. Now there is just one little question which an intelligent and reflective reader would wish to put before acquiescing in this view of the passage itself and of Origen's meaning in it. Does it occur in a discussion like our own on the subject of the date of the Apocalypse, or in any critical sifting of the evidence about it, such as might lead to a decision on the side of the one Roman king or the other as the actual banisher, Nero or Domitian? To which question the simple answer is, nothing of the kind. Origen had been speaking of Christ saying to the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, that they should drink of his cup and be baptized with the baptism he was baptized with. And after an argument of some length to show that by this baptism Christ meant not the baptism in water, but that of martyrdom or suffering, he adds that, if this be admitted as the sense of the phrase, then Christ's saying may be shown to have had fulfillment in respect of either of the two sons of Zebedee. For, adds he, quote, Herod indeed, the Jewish king, killed James with the sword, but the Roman king, as the tradition reports, exiled John to Patmos who himself tells us the fact, though not mentioning who it was that condemned him, saying, I was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God, and so forth. Close quote. The context shows clearly enough, as it seems to me, that the point of Origen's allusion to what St. John had omitted specifying was its being a Roman, not, as in his brother James' case, a Jewish king that was the author of his suffering. Had Origen wished violently to deviate from his whole subject, so as darkly to refer to a disputed chronological point, would he not instead of ha de Romion, basileus have rather said Romion, de basileus tis? The passage is surely, on the face of the thing, utterly worthless for the purpose of which it has been adduced. Indeed, in so far as it goes, it is in favor of the Domitianic date, not the Neuronic. For Origen says in the singular, as the tradition reports to us, close quote not in the plural, quote, as two or more varying traditions report, close quote. So that he would seem to have known of but one tradition, just like Eusebius seventy or eighty years afterwards, and that, by necessary inference, the tradition of Irenaeus, as he could not be ignorant of it. In corroboration of which view I may add that Victorinus, who so decidedly and unhesitatingly refers John's banishment to Domitian, and was apparently quite unaware of any doubt or variance of opinion on the matter, is expressly said by Jerome to have been a careful student of origin. Third comes Professor Stewart's addendum on the external evidence for the neuronic date, written after receiving Guricke's adhesion to that view, and which in part reverts to the old previously disputed evidence, in part reports a certain new light professed to be thrown on the subject by Guricke. As to the old, he says, that he inclines to think on reconsideration that both Clement's testimony and Tertullian's may be regarded as favoring the Neuronic rather than the Domitianic date. The first, because John could hardly at the age of ninety-five have been supposed to travel on horse or on foot, as Clement relates after the young prodigal. Referring here to the account of John and the thief, and then Eliot says in a footnote, On St. John's age, Jerome's is, I believe, the most authoritative statement of ancient tradition, the same that I have given page 34 in a note above. According to this, he was still a puer, or a boy, when called by Christ, a word which, I think, would suggest the age of not more than 18. Professor Hug, volume 2, page 261, reckoning his age as at that time about 16, makes him but 19 at Christ's death, and thus 84 on Nerva's accession. And then Eliot says back again in the text, But is it not John's great age at the time, one essential point in Clement's story? The second, because it rather seems to him that Tertullian meant to note a synchronism of suffering in Paul, Peter, and John, though indeed he does not say anything of the kind. To this I deem no further answer necessary beyond what has already been given by me. And then he says again in a footnote, referring us to pages 40 and 41 above. In order to do away with the argument from Tertullians noting John's banishment as a punishment inflicted on St. John, and the known fact that Domitian so punished Christians as well as others, Professor Stewart says, page 281, "...doubtless banishment of Christians took place under both," that is, under Nero as well as Domitian. But he gives no authority to prove this, and I believe can give none. See my observations at page 44. It is an assumption on the part of the professor just as gratuitous as that other assumption so necessary to, to his theory that Nero's persecution of Christians extended beyond Rome into all the provinces of the empire. Returning to the text, but the new point is a curious one and deserves notice. Guriki has discovered that Irenaeus' own evidence is for Nero, not Domitian. How so? It is thus... Irenaeus says that, quote, the apocalypse was seen almost in our generation, pros ta tele tes Domitianu arches, close quote. Now, argues the German critic, first, if Domitianu were a noun and proper name, it ought to have the article two before it, tes tu Domitianu arches, and as this is wanting, it must be taken adjectively, which being so, then secondly, in accordance with the law of Greek grammatical formations, it must be regarded as derived from the name Domitius, not Domitian. For the adjective form from Domitian would be Domitianikos. Hence, Domitius Nero must be the emperor referred to, Domitius having been Nero's praenomen. Such is Goeric's discovery and argument. No wonder Professor Stewart is much struck with it. Says he, quote, the conjecture is very ingenious, or, if we must rank it higher, the criticism is acute and discriminating. The usual fact is, as Goericke states, that nouns ending in nos form adjectives in ikos. If he is right in his criticism on the word demesianu, the past opinions in respect to it present one of the most singular cases of long-continued and oft-repeated philological error which has ever come to my knowledge. Close quote. Yet the two circumstances... First, that so many Greek fathers and Latin ones understanding Greek supposed Domitian to have been meant by Irenaeus, and second, that Domitius was so very unusual an appellation or title of Nero, make the American professor hesitate at acquiescing in Gericke's solution and still retain some doubts respecting the matter. Now, what is the real state of the question and real value of Gericke's criticism and argument? Number one, Instead of the Article two being required before Domitianu, in case of its being a proper name, we have in the very chapter of Eusebius referred to the History of Eusebius Volume 8, I believe, No no less than three cases of proper names without the article in precisely the same collocation between an article preceding them and the noun that belongs to it following. And then he gives the examples in Greek. Number two, even were Domitianu taken adjectivally, it is not true that it can only be derived as an adjective from Demetios and not Domitianus. According to analogy, it may be from the latter proper name quite as well as from the former, and he gives some linguistic references, and in fact we have examples of both kinds of formation. But Mark, whereas in reference to Domitius Nero, Domitius is the usual adjective made use of so, for example, Domitia Gens, in Suetonius, speaking of Nero's Gens and Kindred, never, I believe, Domitianus. In reference to the emperor Domitian, the adjective Domitianus in question is expressly used, and this by his own friend and contemporary, Statius. In the preface to the fourth book of his Silvae, Statius speaks thus of a road formed by Domitian, calling it in common parlance the Domitian road, tertio viam Domitianum, meritus sum. And indeed, he heads his third ode in that book with the title, this being the subject of the ode, Via Domitiana. Roman numeral two. So much on the professor Stewart and Lucci's external evidence. As to their internal evidence, it is based primarily on three points, all alluded to and sufficiently refuted, I believe, in my preceding essay. First, There is urged the fact of St. John's Gospel being written in better Greek, the apocalypse more Hebraic, as well with more of fire and spirit, a fact accounted for quite otherwise, as I have shown in my note, page 5 above, and on which see also to the same effect Professor Hug, volume 2, page 675. He says in a footnote, Dr. Wordsworth well cites the case of Horace, which I have also myself just alluded to, as composer both of the sermons and the odes in quite different styles, in illustration of the unreasonableness of those objections that have been drawn from the different styles of the Johannic Gospel and the Apocalypse, as if showing that the John who was the author of the one cannot be the author of the other. The same illustration may be applied in proof that the greater fire of one composition of an author does not prove it to be the composition of a younger age, the more prosaic style that of an older age. Horace's Sermones, were productions of a comparatively young age, many of his most spirited odes of an older. Back to the text. Second, they argue that Jerusalem must have been standing when the Apocalypse was written, because of sealed ones out of the tribes of Israel being noted in the Apocalypse chapter 7, and the temple measured and city where our Lord was crucified spoken of in Apocalypse chapter 11. An argument this which, taking for granted as it does the literal meaning of the designation Israel and the temple symbol and so forth, is one of the most extraordinary cases of the Petitio Principii that I have ever met with, especially considering their recognition of the seven candlesticks in a temple like the Jewish at the opening of the Apocalypse as symbols of Christian churches and of the twelve tribes of Israel in the New Jerusalem at the end of the Apocalypse as meant of the spiritual Israel or Christian church. Third, They note the circumstance of five Roman emperors having fallen, reckoned from Julius Caesar, says Stuart, from Augustus, says Lucie, and the sixth reigning at the time of the Apocalypse, according to the angel's statement in Apocalypse chapter 17, whether Nero or else Galba, which last argument also takes for granted what needs to be proved, that the beast's heads mean single emperors. Contrary to the analogy of Daniel chapter 7 verse 6 and chapter 8 verse 22. On which point, however, and other difficulties connected with the view of these expositors, I must beg to refer to my examination of the preterist apocalyptic scheme in the appendix to my fourth volume. They are difficulties, I believe, which the preterists can never get over. Fourthly, there is referred to by them that point of internal evidence arising out of comparison of the apocalyptic representation of the state of the Asiatic churches and the Pauline, on which I have cursorily touched in my primary essay on the date, but on which the arguments of these expositors of the German school make a few additional remarks desirable. It is fully admitted by them that the difference of the apocalyptic picture and the Pauline, in respect both of the number of the Christian churches in proconsular Asia of the state of the two older churches of Ephesus and Laodicea, the only two out of the seven that occur alike in both the two sketches, and of the governing apostle or bishop, in the one case Paul and Timothy, in the other St. John, that these differences are so marked as to require the supposition of a certain not inconsiderable interval of time to account for it. But, says Stuart, some seven or eight years probably had intervened between Paul's letter to the church of Ephesus and the epistle of St. John, close quote, an interval which Lukey's hypothesis of the apocalypse having been written under Galba rather than Nero would increase to eight or nine years, and that this interval is quite sufficient to account for the changes. Now I must beg the reader here to observe the strange omission made by these writers, as if the epistles to the Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon were the only Pauline documents extant to compare with the apocalyptic. We have also for comparison St. Paul's two epistles to Timothy, bishop of Ephesus, and more especially the second epistle, one written, as may be inferred from almost decisive internal evidence, during a second imprisonment of St. Paul at Rome, very shortly before his martyrdom, an event assigned by looking himself to the year 68, the last of Nero. Thus the time of the epistle must be considered as almost touching, certainly scarce more than a year or two years prior to, the date assigned by Stuart or even Lookie to the apocalypse. And consequently, were their theory of the apocalyptic date correct, we might expect the hints that we find in this epistle of Paul to Timothy about the state of things in the Asiatic churches to correspond in considerable measure with the apocalyptic picturings. But is it so? Surely rather the contrary. Not a hint do we find in it of any such large accession and combination of Christian churches in Asia as the apocalypse tells of. Not a hint as to persecution, persecution that might probably be unto death, having reached or threatened the churches there. Not a hint as to the beloved disciple St. John's arrival, or expected arrival in Ephesus, to supersede Timothy in the chief superintendence of the Asiatic churches, and be ready to bear the brunt of the storm coming upon them. And then Eliot encourages us in a footnote, I beg my readers to run their eye through St. Paul's second epistle to Timothy, with this particular point in view. There is on the face of the documents a marked chronological interval between the times of the writing of the one and of the other. Precisely such an interval as that of the thirty years between the Neuronic persecution, under which Paul suffered, and the Domitianic, under which, according to Irenaeus, St. John saw the Apocalypse in Patmos. Fifthly and finally, let me advert to Luke's chronological argument from comparison of the apocalyptic report as to the then state of the Laodicean Church with the fact of the Laodicean earthquake in the sixth year of Nero, ending October 13, A.D. 60, as dated by Tacitus. The subject is one that I have noticed cursorily in my primary essay on the date, but it may be well to supplement the argument as there stated. Luki's reasoning on this head is directed not against the Domitianic theory of date, but against theories which would date the Apocalypse at any considerable time before Galba. Could it have been said to the Laodicean Christians, he argues, "...thou sayest I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing," until several years had elapsed after the earthquake, and given its inhabitants time to recover from its effects? And, so far, his argument seems fair and unanswerable. I observe that Professor Stewart, who advocates a neuronic date before Galba, though he had Lucchi's essay in his hands, yet entirely omits adverting to this point. But while valid against Stuart's neuronic date, is not the argument valid against Luke's own Galbaic date also? Against which date only suggested apparently in order to get this somewhat longer interval, there lies the grave additional objection that no historic evidence points to it as a time of persecution of Christians. Besides which apply now, what I before omitted, the internal evidence bearing on this point, which may be drawn from St. Paul's epistle to the Colossian church, and that to the individual Colossian Philemon. It is all but universally admitted, and not without good reason, that these two epistles were written and dispatched by St. Paul from Rome during his first imprisonment there. To fix their precise date is difficult. In our larger Bibles it is given as A.D. 64, but this seems clearly too late. The best critics, as Whitby, McKnight, Lardner, and so forth, give the date A.D. 61 or 62, Quite irrespective, however, of the fact of the earthquake we speak of, which somewhat remarkably they altogether overlook. For my own part, I incline to assign them to the autumn of the year sixty, in order to make the date consistent with Tacitus' date of the Laodicean earthquake, as in Nero's sixth year, ending, as I said, October thirteen, A.D. sixty. For, of course, the circumstance of Saint Paul's writing to the Colossians and sending messages to or respecting the Christians of Laodicea as also of Hierapolis, shows that those cities were all three then in existence, and that no such tremendous catastrophe as that of an overthrow by an earthquake had just immediately before that time befallen any one of the three cities. At the same time, as the autumn of sixty seems full early for the date of the two epistles spoken of, a doubt may not unnaturally suggest itself to many as to the accuracy of Tacitus' date, and a preference be given to that of Eusebius, who, alluding doubtless to the same earthquake, assigned it to the tenth year of Nero, four years later. With which date, let me observe, the medallic and historical evidence referred to in my essay Suits just as well as with that of Tacitus. Then, if so, in Luckey's own express judgment, the interval between this Laodicean earthquake in AD 64 and his presumed apocalyptic date under Galva in the last half of 69 will be too small to consist with the apocalyptic picture of Laodicea's then flourishing state of worldly ease and opulence, an inconsistency still greater, of course, in the case of Professor Stewart's somewhat earlier neuronic date. As to the time of Colossae's restoration, it may be remembered that the negative medallic evidence mentioned in my essay militates against its having occurred till a long time after. Pliny, indeed, in his N.H. volume 41, Written probably under Vespasian, cursorily mentions Colossae with eight others as among the most famous towns of Phrygia. But writing from books, apparently, see his B, Volume 3, Chapter 1, rather than from personal knowledge of the locality, he may probably have repeated in this some earlier account about the towns of Phrygia written before the catastrophe of the earthquake. On the other hand, in the copious and particular enumeration of all the cities in that neighborhood, then standing, By Ptolemy, the learned geographer of the times of Hadrian and Antoninus Pius, the name of Colossae appears not, a fact this quite accounting for the omission of Colossae in the apocalyptic epistles to the seven churches. In conclusion, we see that while all and every indication, medallic and historic, scriptural and classical, internal and external, combine to militate against a neuronic or galbaic date, they all accord perfectly with the supposition of a Domitianic date to the Apocalypse. As we observed in the introduction, preterism is entirely overthrown if the prophetic 1260 days, spoken of in Daniel and Revelation, actually refer to 1260 years. We now turn, then, to the scriptural and historical evidence for this interpretive principle. This is chapter 9 in volume 4 of Eliot, and is entitled, The Beast's 1260 Years, In section one, the year-day principle. The beast's predicted period of twelve hundred sixty days reminds us that the time has now come for considering the propriety of that principle on which I have hitherto proceeded in my explanations of the several numerically expressed chronological periods enunciated in the apocalyptic prophecy, that is, of regarding a day as meant to signify a year. The great and notorious fact of the popedom having lasted in power some twelve hundred years or more and seeming now near its dissolution, accordingly with the prophetic period of 1260 days assigned to the beast, if construed on the year-day principle, and that too of the accordance of prophecy and history on the same principle, in regard of the other apocalyptic prophetic periods already discussed by me, that is, of the five months of the Saracen woe, the hour, day, month, and year of the Turkish, and the three and a half days of the slain witnesses seeming to lie dead, cannot but help to impress conviction on my own mind of the truth of the principle. At the same time, it is clearly desirable, and even requisite, on so important a point, to consider the grounds of the interpretation more at large, and to weigh with deliberation and candor the objections which Dr. S. R. Maitland and others have of late years so elaborately and so influentially advanced against it. I purpose, therefore, in the present section, first, to state the presumptive a priori evidence that suggests itself in its favor. I mean a priori to any supposed fulfillment, not, however, without brief reallusion to the subsequent corroborative evidence of history. Next, to state and answer Dr. Maitland's and others' arguments against it, especially the indirect arguments, in which consists, in fact, their main strength. I reserve for my appendix a more particular examination into those two great systems of of apocalyptic interpretation, the holy past, advocated by Bosway, Stewart, and so forth, and holy future advocated by Dr. Maitland and his school, which are alike based on the principle of the prophetic day being restricted to its simple literal signification of a day, the prophetic kairos to its literal signification of a year. This would here detain us too long. But of course, if these systems be proved, as I believe they will be, utterly impossible... Their fall must of itself involve the fall of the day-day chronological system, which is inseparable alike from the one of them and the other. Roman numeral one, the presumptive a priori evidence against the day-day and in favor of the year-day principle in Daniel's and the apocalyptic prophecies. And here, first, let me suggest that which arises out of the nature of the prophetic symbols, It is to be observed that the apocalyptic prophecies to which the controversy relates are confessedly symbolic prophecies, alike that of the scorpion locusts, the lion-headed horses from the Euphrates, the two sackcloth-robed witnesses, the sun-clothed woman driven into the wilderness, and the ten-horned beast from the abyss and sea. At least this is confessed on either side in regard of all but the prophecy of the two witnesses. Now in such prophecies it were surely reasonable to expect, even prior to investigation, that a certain propriety and proportion of scale between the symbol and the thing symbolized would be observed in respect of the time as well as of the other circumstantials noted in the picture. Could it be supposed that Scripture would quite neglect that canon of propriety which natural taste has inculcated on the poet and the painter? I am speaking just now, it will be understood, of the observance of chronological proportion in a general way, not of the particular year-day scale of proportion. And in proof that this is not unobserved in sacred symbolic prophecy, a single example may suffice. It is one on which no difference of opinion can exist. In the sixteenth chapter of Ezekiel, the Jewish nation being symbolized under the figure of a woman, the youthful period of the nation is represented under the type of that woman's youthful age, and time of growth to womanhood, that is, a period of some 400 years and more, from Isaac's birth to Israel's entering into covenant with God at Sinai, under that of some 15 or 20. This is the end of tape one of Preterism Refuted, excerpts from E.B. Eliot's Horae Apocalypticae, or a commentary on the Apocalypse. Please note that this four-volume work is available from Stillwater's Revival Books at www.swrb.com or by email at swrb at swrb.com, or by phone at 780-450-3730. And again, please note that these tapes are not copyrighted, and we therefore encourage you to copy and distribute them to whomever you deem would benefit.